0: Hello, listeners. This is Gabe Boynan welcoming you back to Fragile Juggernaut. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we're picking up at 1877 uh, in the Gilded Age and the rise of the Titanic labor conflicts of that era. And we will be taking you in this conversation up until the eve of World War One. Andrew, what are some of the things that we're going to cover in this episode?
1: Well, in the 1880s, we have the decline of the Knights of Labor, the rise and decline of, of, of the Knights of Labor. Uh, the first kind of national proto-labor party, and industrially organized workers organization, uh, and it's supplanting by a new federation of labor unions known as the American Federation of Labor. That, that'll get us into a period of fundamental economic restructuring in the 1890s, the Great Merger Movement, And the emergence of a new kind of politics, very different from the politics of the Knights of Labor, focused on national trade agreements between large new trusts, combinations of factories across many different states, and a forswearing of earlier kinds of working class political activity by the new labor organizations affiliated with the AFL. And um, there are two particular industries that uh, listeners should keep in mind. The first is the coal mining industry, which has various fits and starts throughout the 1870s and 1880s, but which really has its modern history in 1897, with the negotiation of a national trade agreement that really enforces a kind of cartel onto the highly competitive, many employer industry of, of coal mining. Uh, from 1897 when the Central Competitive Field was organized uh, the mine workers grew from around 9700 members to by the eve of World War 1 almost 400,000 members representing over 50% and what was the Central Competitive Field it was the name of the you know the economic unit of coal mines along all of the rivers that flowed into or out of the city of Pittsburgh uh, there had been several attempts to, to organize such a price floor among all the mines of the region, some more successful than, than others. But it's not until the very end of the of the century that you have a, a contract that fixes tonnage rates uh, in the industry and establishes a firm institutional basis for the, the United Mine Workers of America to grow, which it proceeds to do tremendously. The mine workers understood the importance of electoral politics and legislation to their industry in a way that puts them in a sharp distinction to the American Federation of Labor and most of its other unions around the, the building and construction trades and the, the, the metal trades, the basic uh, balance of power in the industry in mining depended on things like who was going to weigh the coal that the miners are getting paid for. And so there's a succession of laws throughout the 1890s in state legislatures regulating the industry. And it brings the the nexus of power around business and government enforced through the courts out into the open. And that's a legacy of earlier groups like the Knights of Labor, which survives through the United Mine Workers at a a period when the rest of organized labor is really turning in a a different direction. So that's one key institution to, to look out for in the coming episodes. And then the other, which we touch on at the very end here, are the garment trades. Gabe, do you wanna say a little bit about, about their importance?
0: Yeah, so the uh, the garment trades, sometimes also called the needle trades, are in some ways seen as a kind of barbaric holdover in capitalist industry. Clothing, right? we're not talking about the making of fabric, we're talking about the making of clothing out of fabric here. Fabric is made in relatively big factories. And then the fabric, goes to the garment industry to turn into clothing. Clothing, historically, was one of the first uh, mass consumer commodities. One of the first kind of major changes capitalism brought to everyday life was that you bought your clothes instead of women making them in the home. And the way that industry was organized, in part due to its age, in part due to its kind of cost structure, was extremely fragmented. So it's a classic sweatshop industry uh, right, and when when you say the word sweatshop, most often what you're describing is people sewing clothing. For much of the 19th and early 20th century, large sections of the garment trades were organized through homework. So, parts of the process are done kind of in more factory settings. Parts are subcontracted out to families to do in their apartments basically right and this is the world of the lower east side of new york you find it also in boston in new haven in baltimore and providence in every city to some extent in chicago certainly it was very intensely associated with not just poverty but disease and squalor uh, industrial production in the home and was one of the kind of great causes of the progressive era to figure out how to regulate this industry which was seen also as a ma- correctly as a major site of child labor The needle trades were divided in their structure and then in the way that they were eventually organized by unions, by the gender of the ultimate product. So the men's clothing industry and the women's clothing industry are sort of different industries and they ultimately have different unions.
1: Women's clothing in in particular having the economic distinction of changing styles.
0: Exactly, yeah. Right, so the women's clothing industry is bigger, basically. Um, Although, you know, they're both... It's a huge labor market in virtually every major city and one of the major destinations for Jewish immigrants, Italian immigrants, and to some some extent other kinds of immigrants as well. It still exists in the present, by the way, in Los Angeles, for example, versions of this industry are still with us in parts of Brooklyn and Queens. The struggle over how to impose order on this extremely fragmented industry, as Andrew was saying about coal, is also true in a way for garments, uh, right, becomes a political question in terms of how can you regulate this kind of very complex set of business relationships uh, which penetrate into the home, right? It involves, the the agitation around the industry involves the state from an early moment. It also is a agitation in this industry is a very important vector for immigrant radicalism, particularly so Jewish socialist and anarchist traditions to flow into the American labor movement. We're highlighting the needle trades and the coal industry here in particular because the CIO is founded by the United Mine Workers of America, Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So that's the two garment unions of the Coal Miners Union. Those organizations figured out the concept of industrial unionism, figured out how to implement it, before much of the rest of the American labor movement did. And this discussion will encompass many of the kind of great epic battles of American labor history that you probably know a little bit about if you're listening to this show. Things like the Pullman strike where Eugene Debs made his name, the Homestead strike, one of the great bloody kind of struggles of uh, American labor history, um, the Triangle Shirtwaist fire and so on. So building an account of the scene into which the CIO enters and what makes the CIO sort of historically possible. So to just go into the episode, Think about that world alongside the world uh that world of common labor as it might have been called right the unskilled of the immigrants the people who have no representation alongside the world of highly skilled craftsmen who've dominated the labor movement for much of the 19th century who in many ways are able into the 1890s to set the terms for their work because they know how to make the product in a way that their boss doesn't those are worlds apart from each other and the question of how they're going to come together is the question of the american labor movement
2: life is like a sailors, board a ship to cross the waves. every day his life's in danger.
3: Fragile Juggernaut is brought to you by Haymarket Books, publisher of a wide range of essential books, especially relevant to listeners like you. One that you might be interested in reading is The Labor Wars by Sidney Lenz. The rise of the American labor movement was characterized by bloody and revolutionary skirmishes. From the first famous martyrs, the Molly Maguires in the Pennsylvania coal fields in the 19th century, to the crucial workers' victory of the 1930s, it's a history of pitched battles that frequently erupted into open warfare. Sidney Lens' classic account chronicles this violence, as well as the factional wars in the labor movement itself and the story of the great leaders it generated. Eugene Debs, Samuel Gompers, William Z. Foster, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Bill Haywood, John L. Lewis, Walter Ruther, and many more. Find the labor wars at haymarketbooks.org, where all paperback books are 20% off every day. The
4: Union, stand together. The
1: Abraham Rosenberg, who later becomes a leader of the ILG, has a description. He wrote a memoir in which he has a description of his initiation into the Knights. Here I'm quoting the district master workman, like the grand master of an order today with several deputies, all Irish came to install us. Since we were for the most part immigrants, we of course did not understand a word they said to us. We merely looked on while one of the deputies took a piece of chalk and drew a large circle on the floor. He bade us all stand in the circle. After that, One of the deputies laid a small sword on the table and hung a globe on the meeting hall door. Many of us, on seeing the sword, thought that we were all going to be slaughtered, or else drafted into the army. Most of us bade life farewell. Afterwards, some of those who had understood a little more of what had gone on explained that the meaning of the ceremony was as follows. If one of us should break the oath which he had taken to remain true to the workers' interests, this sword would pursue him. For the knights of labor were mighty the world over. It's like magic. <laughs> I'm sure it felt like that. I mean, this is the first national organization
3: that is really calling on people to organize and providing them with some degree of resource to do so. I mean, it, it, more than 700,000 people are in this organization by 1886. They managed that without any Twitter. Uh, like, I, it's hard to fathom the reach of this thing. Some of the affiliated groups might be craft group, uh, people working with a particular set of tools. It might be somewhat industrial. There's even local based forms of um, labor organization agitation. You know, people in an entire municipality or district might join a group that's an important part of the prehistory of the CIO. So there's this really flexible structure there at work of different workers getting organized in different ways, but under this kind of common aegis of this huge organization, which um, is not just organized on the shop floor. It doesn't just have an economic component, but importantly for Mike Davis, but I think also the history of the CIO, it kind of really has a more profound vision than that. Its organization stretches beyond
1: just the shop floor.
5: And who's, who's
1: allowed to be in this union? Well, it's famously open. It, it includes women, which is a big radical move for the 19th century, and it includes people of color. Some, Yeah, there's a lot of local variation.
5: It's a lot more open to including um, black workers, for for example, than Asian workers, right? And this is also a period of large-scale Chinese immigration to the U.S. And and by and large, uh, U.S. labor organizations, including the Knights, uh, have a difficult time finding a a place
0: for the Asian workers in their vision. Well, and some of the cycle we've been describing on the West Coast from the 1870s to the 1880s plays out very powerfully in California. You have a working men's party organized in California that takes quite a lot of power through and around 1877 and into the 1880s, as we've been saying, but, you know, in addition to its kind of denunciation in particular of the, you know, the railroads and the mining monopolies in the gold fields, they also see Chinese immigrants as kind of reintroducing slavery. The appearance of the Chinese immigrant in California is understood by white workers as the reintroduction of slavery by the kind of appearance of a new you know, intrinsically subservient race, and that's that's their kind of analysis. Um, you know, we have lots of history now showing that actually Chinese immigrants who make it to California, as you might expect, are uh, quite entrepreneurial and not subservient. Um, but uh, that that kind of form of anti-Chinese politics was very very potent, especially kind of from the Rockies westward.
2: On the other hand, they made a concerted effort to organize black workers in the South, which was you know, a dangerous thing to do. They weren't necessarily the first people to organize black workers in the South because black workers were organizing themselves, as we've talked about, but this was part of the political program. And I have a quote from a Southern organizer who said that, and I'm gonna use the language of the time, so just take that with a grain of salt, but, quote, the colored people make good knights. They are exceedingly watchful of their liberty and a strong, powerful organization of them is only a question of time. So you can kind of see how like the, the struggles of Civil War reconstruction, you know, the 1870s are kind of feeding into this moment. And this idea that, you know, black workers are very watchful of their liberty and strong organization among them is only a matter of time. In retrospect, is like such a tragic idea, you know. Um, but it was, I think, indicative of that like upheaval of the 1870s.
0: I also feel like that helps us see really usefully the ways that the knights are the kind of organizational incarnation of the working-class version of Repu- the Republican kind of vision that we've been talking about, right? And some of the advantages and disadvantages or possibilities and limits of that that we began to discuss in the context of, like, the Lincoln coalition are also present, I think, in a new new form here that we should, we should talk a bit about. I mean, what was the vision of the Knights for what they demanded? How did they understand the social order and how it was changing and their place in it?
1: Well, a key ally in what ultimately becomes their, their peak political challenge is, is not wage labor, but farmers, the Farmers Alliance, which is something that is, that is being organized in this time to, to, to fight the deflation that we talked about, falling agricult- agricultural prices and to enable farmers to have some way of controlling their own livelihoods.
5: And the, the language that the Knights have for trying to tie these you know the struggles of workers and farmers and different kinds of uh, small producers together is the language of, of cooperation. Right. um, Which extends from something that actually existed, you know, like a a farmer's cooperative to a a sort of full vision of a cooperative commonwealth as a, you know, sort of very radical way of organizing the entire American political economy.
1: Right. And this is a period in which corporation law is very much unsettled. So the idea that collective enterprises, which is what a corporation is, could be managed in a spirit that is uh, fair and uh, uh, democratic is something that, you know, speaks to a lot of people and and has not yet been foreclosed by the courts. That's undoubtedly there as a part of the kind of ideological
3: formation and a set of demands that emanate from shop floor struggles of the Knights. It's also kind of there in terms of organizational ethos and cultural practice. I mean, they open up cooperative stores all over the place, but they also build what Mike Davis calls a kind of parallel proletarian civil society. They've got workers' militias in some places. their political and social clubs. They have features that you might associate with working-class political parties in Europe, right? In the same way that the German SPD had, you know, their potato clubs and their choral groups. That was there in the Knights. For Mike, this is really important. It's the spirit of cooperation and fraternity as a part of what the Knights are doing, because for him it represents one of the first instances that it's not just doing interracial organizing, but that it offers a kind of working-class counterculture, one that can bring together even disparate groups of white workers, which are otherwise torn asunder on the basis of ethnicity, migration patterns, and religious denomination. It's precisely those sort of institutions that divided workers throughout most of the 19th century will continue to divide workers in the period that we'll be talking about for a lot of the podcast.
5: And I wonder if it's worth just spending a moment on the you know the importance of the cultural or civil society aspect of, of, of Davis's argument, because I think, you know, we talked at the beginning about how you know, Mike doesn't so much reject a lot of the classic explanations for American exceptionalism as kind of reinterpret them and historicize them. And so, a great example of that is, you know, the idea that there is no socialism in the U.S. because of ethnic and racial um, heterogeneity. And you know, Mike doesn't disagree with that, but he says it's not—it's not the mere fact or the you know the sort of physical existence of these different populations. It's the reality, the historical reality, that these different groups are socialized and, you know, find themselves surviving and reproducing through distinct ethnically defined civil societies, right? And so, you know, the Irish Catholic world is a great example for thinking about this. You might go to parochial schools, you know, get your coal and your paycheck from an Irish uh, democratic political machine. You know, in all these ways, your, your real material life is existing through a sort of ethnically defined civil society and there's a parallel one for protestants right and maybe different parallel ones you know for other kinds of catholics and so it's not the it's not the existence of the ethnic uh, heterogeneity so much as the existence of these different civil societies and so it follows for mike that uh, to overcome these differences uh, a working class organization like the knights or labor the cio will have to
0: create its own you know sort of integrative civil society it can't just exist in the workplace and this also, in a way, goes to the weakness of the Knights, right? I mean, which is that to try to gather these quite disparate layers and segments of the working class under itself, drawing on the ideological resources of republicanism, their analysis is kind of vague and hazy in important ways, right? Um, I mean, the Knights, you can't be a member if you're a banker, I believe. You, there's, there's some limits like that but they are actually open to the membership even of people who we would have no problem recognizing as kind of industrial capitalists, basically, um, because they kind of participate in this producerist politics, right, that distinguishes between producers and parasites, right, as as a way of thinking about social and political order as opposed to thinking clearly about classes in the way that we might do now. And that has to do also with not just the kind of heterogeneity of the people who may organize, but also the real important persistence across the whole 19th century in some changing forms, some persistent forms of artisans and craftsmen, right, in all kinds of industrial processes, people who have some residue of that kind of petty producer vision of the world. And that is also, as Andrew was saying, part of the kind of fit that they find with the farmers or the partial fit in that alliance.
1: Yeah, this is still an era in which the master craftsman becomes a kind of contractor on his own. And so the, the achievement of one's career as a trades worker is eventually to run your own business and become the person letting the contracts and, and running running a shop. And the title of the head of the Knights of Labor is Grand Master Workman. Right, and that's something that'll last until the 1920s in the building trades, To just to give one example, is, is a kind of enduring uh, ideological feature of the industry, which Davis comes, you know, in his explanation of of what will then emerge out of the era of the CIO, a kind of weakness of of American social democracy.
2: And this is also one of the reasons why um, in some places you don't see the Knights align with organizations of farmers like the Farmers Alliance, because like the Knights, the Farmers Alliance um, comprised farm workers as well as owners of farms, property owners. And so in some places, when there was a question of, are we going to support the Knights or vice versa, the the answer was no, because why would a large landowner who employs agricultural workers want to empower a labor organization that is embracing all of these workers? Um, And so this is a real tension that actually Davis maybe papers over a little bit, um, producerism dies as soon as there is an emergence of, uh, you know, bonafide like wage earning class. But the inheritance of that idea is I think longstanding.
0: So the failure to fuse into a farmer labor party of some kind is important to their ultimate demise. But also I think this brings us to 1886 probably and kind of crisis of the Knights of Labor and the next major episode of upheaval in U.S. labor history. But it's also worth saying 1880s generally, right, are this moment uh, partly coming out of everything we've been talking about of increasing sort of circulation of radical ideas, right? Um, I think a good example is Edward Bellamy's novel Looking Backward, which kind of flashes forward to the year 2000, by which time America had become a kind of like... Uh, we might call it kind of Stalinist utopia. (laughs) Um,
5: He he might call it the cooperative commonwealth.
0: He would call it the cooperative, yeah, it's it's pretty attractive. It's it's a genuine utopia. And Bellamy was huge, that's why I mentioned it, right? Incredibly popular novel, Uh, Bellamy Society, they're called nationalist clubs formed kind of to bring about this reality all over the country. And that's not the only thing like this, right? There are many, many things like this in circulation in the 1880s and 1890s. But I think most importantly for our purposes, there's a series of major strikes in 1885 and 1886 Uh, Again, rail is really, really important, although not exclusive. And uh, they kind of come to a head in May of 1886 in Chicago, where workers at the McCormick uh, Reaper Works, uh, Agricultural Implements Corporation, are on strike. And here I just would like to take a step backward and point something out, right, which is that we've been kind of tacitly describing what you could think of as a kind of developmental block of capitalists, which is I think best described as like the agro-industrial national development coalition. And if you just think about like, well, what do you need to make railroads? You need steel. What do you need to make steel? You need coal and iron. Uh, What do you need to ship the coal and iron? You need railroads and ships. What are ships made out of steel? What are you shipping on the railroads? Agricultural commodities. How do you harvest agricultural commodities with agricultural implements? What are agricultural implements made out of steel? Uh, So this kind of confluence of coal, iron, shipping, rail, and steel is sort of driving the national economic development dynamic and not coincidentally is at the center of the class struggles that we've been talking about.
5: And it all takes place in the land of Lincoln, right? Which couldn't be more appropriate. Right, exactly.
0: So you have this big strike in Chicago. Um, by this time, the city is increasingly being transformed by, uh, you know, from its kind of pioneer days, by um, immigrants, Irish and German immigrants, especially, and the demand is for an eight-hour day. It's a national demand, right? The strike is in fact national in in important ways. It's not only in Chicago, but it's in Chicago that in the first week of May, there is a major rally of striking workers demanding the eight-hour day in Haymarket Square. Uh, And this is a very infamous episode in global labor history. It's where we get May Day from. As workers are demonstrating and anarchists are speaking up on the stage, a bomb is thrown by persons unknown into the line of police surrounding the strikers, killing a number of police, um, and I think a couple of other participants in the action. Um, and basically, then the state kind of goes into a major repressive mode. A bunch of the people who had helped organize the rally and, in fact, were speaking on the platform at the time of the explosion are prosecuted and hung, basically for ideological reasons, right? They, like the only real c- case against them is that they're ideologically connected to. Anarchism And anarchism is a kind of ideology of bomb-throwing, as it's understood. And employers go on the attack against the Knights of Labor nationwide, brutally and with great success.
5: And the, the cause of labor loses some of the kind of broad respectability it had up to that point. You know, I, I think often of the, um, there are these effects in the, the economics discipline, you know, in the academy, which is just emerging at this time. Up to that point, um, a lot of the founding figures in what became the institutional school of American economics. Had said, you know, frankly, that they wrote um, as proponents of labor. Um, they were, you know, they're often sort of Christian socialists, which meant Protestant in this case. And after, you know, the Haymarket affair and, and all the um, backlash to that, you see the the economists who continue to see themselves as advocates of labor either forced from the academy or forced to change their tune. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the intellectual or, or part of the civil society support. Uh, for this broad vision uh, started to collapse.
0: Right, in fact, it's the first Red Scare. We often talk about the first Red Scare happening in 1919, but this is, in, in truth, the first Red Scare. So out of the vacuum, right, of this the rapid destruction, basically, of the Knights of Labor forms America's most enduring federation of labor, the one that by any stretch has to be, I think, accounted as the most successful and the one that we love to hate, which is the American Federation of Labor, AFL. AF of L, as I would have called it then. And uh, just to kind of introduce the AFL, it's a trade union, in the kind of, or it's a confederate, it's a federation of trade unions in the kind of uh, stricter sense of that term. We sometimes use that term in this country to just mean unions in general, but right, in particular, it is an organization of organizations that unite workers on the basis of their craft. And what, what let's talk about what we think is significant about that.
1: Well, the object of labor organizing becomes seriously circumscribed uh, in this emergence of the AFL. I mean, there's a period of 10 years or so where, you know, the Knights are still around. The AFL is just another group claiming national representation of workers. But the the goals and the methods, you know, between the Knights and the, and, and the AFL are profoundly different in that uh, kind of sacred goal of the unions affiliated with the FFL becomes the contract, holding employers to, to standards through legally enforceable contracts, which is very different from,
5: say, a working man's party trying to take over a state legislature.
0: Or a cooperative commonwealth.
5: Right. And the, and the power they want to use to, to win that contract is the power of craft solidarity, right? You know, in the in the simplest version, uh, a lot of left-wing people deprecate craft unionism and uphold industrial unionism because industrial unionism is inclusive and craft unionism is often, uh, exclusive, right? Sort of by its nature. Um, but it's, I think it's important to spend a minute understanding what is the, the sort of enduring logic and the reason why, you know, so many workers throughout history have turned as the AFL
0: did to craft principles. Well, I think there are two important kind of intersecting dimensions of it that I would, I would want to talk about, right? One is, A logic that really did hold for lots of skilled workers in the late 19th century, which was the idea, as Big Bill Haywood would put it, that the manager's brain is under the workman's cap, that's to say. In lots of even quite big factories into the 1880s and 1890s and beyond even, management still basically didn't know how the job got done, right? And there would be a group of maybe not a majority of the workforce, but a significant portion of the workforce who had grown up in the trade, maybe inherited the trade from their fathers, even, who understood kind of by rule of thumb, how to do very complex industrial processes, chemical processes, metallurgical processes, mechanical processes, etc. They just sort of like they had learned the knack. And that gave them a certain kind of power, right, especially because that Form of knowledge and skill often existed at a bottleneck in the production process, right, where the employer had not yet figured out how to kind of circumnavigate them. And if that's just the source of your economic power, it makes sense in a way that your organization would be all the people who have it and none of the people who don't. That's to say, the unskilled workers who are shoveling the coal in the yard outside. Why would you let them participate in the decisions that your organization is going to make? The great labor historian Dave Montgomery writes a lot about this phenomenon. And, uh, you know, he describes how in many workplaces, uh, there would be a norm for skilled workers. That you simply don't work when the boss is looking at you, right? If he comes into your shop, put down your tools until he leaves because you don't work under supervision. And I think that gives you some sense of what that power looks like. What that would have to do with the relationships of trust and solidarity that'll uh, make a union possible, I think should be clear in a way. And also what it, what those relationships of trust and solidarity have to do with race and, and national status and immigration and gender, I think also should be clear, right? These are brotherhoods. They're brotherhoods of men. Often by this time, they're Irish, right? The Irish have kind of ascended from the unskilled to the skilled layer of the working class, but not only, right? Lots of Germans and native-born Americans and so on. They're brotherhoods of men who can trust each other because they're like each other and because they share a set of skills, a very particular set of skills.
5: And to the trust issue, you know, it's worth just remembering that to go on strike at this point was an enormously risky thing, right? Um, probably something like strike funds existed, but they were nothing like what they would later become. Uh, you know, the, the potential for legal and extra-legal violence and repression and blacklisting was huge. So it really wasn't, you know, it's never a light thing to go out on strike, but it certainly wasn't a light thing to go out on strike in the 1880s. And that, you know, I think does help understand why, you know, these uh, some of these seemingly exclusive organizations were so so persistent and powerful.
1: And controlling the conditions of a particular craft becomes a much more possible goal and purpose after the failure of something like the knights and movements in the states that had accompanied the growth of the knights for regulation of wage and hours in 1886 Haymarket affairs is an 8-hour strike which has to be called because courts are striking down laws regulating you know hours of work uh, and so you know in that in that situation in which the struggle for political you know legislative solutions Uh, has been so severely attacked, people like Samuel Gompers, who is the president of the AFL, can say legitimately, we tried that, it didn't work, we're going to do this now, which is going after, you know, how many carpenters are there going to be in Chicago and New York City? Um, There had been, you know, there had been wage and hour laws, there was a federal wage and hour law during the war, sorry, during the civil war for procurement, but the growth of sweatshops is something that uh, accompanies the factory system in which, you know, some key portion of, uh, say, the making of, of clothing, the factory comes to be a place where fabric is cut and then let out to people at piece rates who could be doing it in their apartment. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the competition among, among workers for work drives these rates down and breeds, uh, you know, sweatshops. And so, the, the, you know, the growth of sweatshops, of child labor in particular, uh, as, as a kind of symbol of the social evil of sweatshops, stimulates efforts at uh, legal regulation. And, you know, so in 1885, the state of Illinois passes a law establishing, uh, you know, agencies to monitor and report on the sanitary conditions of workplaces and um, and to regulate hours of work. And those laws are uh, declared unconstitutional. So from the 18, mid-1880s, to mid-1890s, there's uh, dozens of these laws passed, and they're consistently Struck
5: down. So the courts are throwing out pro-labor legislation, which is a you know a sort of a pattern that will persist in some way into the, the 30s, and we'll talk about later. They're also issuing these injunctions, right? Tell me a little bit about, about rule by injunction. Well, if you can't regulate your industry
1: through elected government, you can you can try to do so through through what we today call collective bargaining, through strikes, but the power that you and your community as a worker can can come to wield. Depends on you know in part you know the the police not coming and breaking up your picket line and uh, so in addition to courts uh, striking down legislation they come to hold uh, actions like uh, sympathy strikes you have some pipe fitters on a on a job who see uh, non union carpenters and they say this is bad for the carpenters we're not going to work today until you make sure that those are union members at that job uh, and they stop work that's a, you know it's a different organization a different craft. But it's engaging in a sympathy strike that kind of action becomes held by courts to be unlawful and the judge will issue you know will enjoin that that strike and that you know ultimately empowers a a sheriff police police officer to come and 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 break that action and so the injunctions start to be issued not only for things like you know uh, uh restraints of trade the antitrust laws which become operative um not only against things like restraints of trade but also against what come to be called criminal conspiracies so by the 1890s, a group of workers who are acting in solidarity to try to regulate the terms and conditions of their work can be called by a judge a criminal conspiracy, thrown in jail, the opposition to strike removed, and the industry
0: moves forward with lower standards. And I think that sets us up well to think about why craft unionism is appealing in a way, right? Pure and simple unionism around the question of legislation, really tight knots of trust and solidarity among kind of occupationally and racially and ethnically, similar groups of men. And it also, I think, sets us up well to talk a bit about the great dramas of the 1890s. Each decade, 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s has some. I
5: think a good case study for, uh, you know, thinking about the way some of this develops into the 1890s, which lets us see uh, the real limitations of American working class organization as it it existed uh, up to that point, is the pretty well-known homestead strike in 1892, the Homestead Steelworks, which at that part was part of, um, you know, the Carnegie Company would later become part of U.S. Steel in 1901 when that merger was organized. That was a, a local of the um, a union that had be- begun its life uh, in 1858 as the Sons of Vulcan, right? A name which sort of conjures up that Freemason-like uh, ethos that we've talked about. Um, by the 1870s, the Sons of Vulcan was one of the strongest unions in the U.S., it turned into something called uh, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, uh, or the AA, as it was commonly known. And the AA is a, is a great sort of classic example of the sort of craft union that we've described here. Uh, it was centered on uh, particular trades and skills at a bottleneck in the production process, specifically the moment when pig iron is, is turned into steel. And they, they had a very strong contract with um, Carnegie uh, in which there were pages and pages of footnotes defining the rules for how uh, the production work at the plant and really limiting management's discretion to change the production process, especially when it came to something like maximizing the output. So it really sums up that power that they had. And precisely because they had that power, the steel company was you know, determined to break the union, which they did ultimately in 1892 with a conflict that you know began as a lockout um, and turned into really a, a pitched battle with Pinkerton detectives on one side and workers organized into military formations on the
0: other. Homestead is on the Monongahela River, which is a tributary of the Ohio. The town of Homestead, which is just across the Monongahela from Pittsburgh, in some ways kind of rallied around the strike initially in the lockout. And so the Pinkertons had to make an amphibious attack on the town from the city of Pittsburgh. And the workers actually, you know, they all had guns and you know, fought in the Civil War and stuff. And they also had an old cannon just to give you a sense of the scale of the confrontation
5: i think it was a civil war cannon so you can really you know see see this as a as an outgrowth of that um and ultimately more than a dozen uh people were killed on both sides, both workers and pinkertons the state militia called in um but it was a complete defeat for the union uh which uh not just at homestead but around the country declined after that in the two decades after the homestead strike in 1892 The AA went from having 24,000 members uh, to less than 6,000 members. It went from being one of the largest AFL unions uh, to basically non existence. And that was the result of, you know, obviously this intense violence and repression and and a determination by uh, the employers. But it also maybe reflected this, uh, the exclusivity that we've talked about. Um, I think I found the numbers. About one in five of the workers at the Homestead Works was represented by the AA, you know, the skilled workers. And this is something that Carnegie pointed to in his anti-union rhetoric. He said, you know, this is a minority organization, which doesn't even represent all the workers. You know, clearly there's a lot of bad faith in there, but it, but it shows uh, the difficulty of maintaining this kind of minoritarian union at a moment when the corporations were becoming larger and larger and larger. And so uh, 10 years after this, uh, the Carnegie Steel Company is made part of the U.S. Steel Corporation, which is the biggest corporation in world history up to that point capitalized at over a billion dollars and really showing the way I think that the the capitalist class, which also had its own internal conflicts, was able to bring itself together on an effective national scale in a way that the workers working for something like U.S. Steel were not able to do at that point around 1901.
0: Uh, So the second episode of the 1890s that seemed worth spending some time on is the Pullman Strike, which has a lot of these features in common. So Pullman, folks will probably know in some way, right, Pullman cars, Pullman Palace cars, as they were called. Uh, were kind of luxury sleeper cars on the railroads. They were manufactured in a company town just in what's now inside Chicago, but was then just south of Chicago. And in 1893, Homestead was 1892. In 1893, there is another economic panic. And George Pullman, who has laid off lots of workers and cuts wages for those who are still employed, nonetheless, is continuing to try to rent, to to collect rent from workers in company housing. Uh, And, you know, this is the Pullman Company Town was thought to kind of be a way of solving class conflict, Uh, Right, we're going to give workers a sort of decent, you know, little cute, quaint village to live in. But instead, the Company Town dynamic, as often proves to be true, leads into this volcanic eruption. And this is where Eugene Debs enters the story. Debs was a railway fireman, Uh, initially, and a kind of local notable in Terre Haute, Indiana, which tells you something about the social position of the craftsman in the late 19th century, right, that a railway fireman, classic kind of craft worker. I think he was a state senator, and, you know, he was, like, married to a banker's daughter. He, you know, he was, like, not the wretched of the earth. He fires the engine. I used to think he put out fires, but no, he fires the engine. Feeds it, in other words, right? Anyway, Debs has already risen at this point, in kind of in some leadership in the, in the Brotherhood of Railway Firemen, but recognizes it, uh, you know, from the defeats of the different craft unions in the rail system over the course of these years, the necessity for unity among railroad workers. Pullman, as we're saying, when a Pullman car is rented to a railroad company, or rent is not even quite the right way of describing it, because what happens is the Pullman Corporation would continue to operate it. So the workers in a Pullman car, as it's moving around the country on a larger train, are employees not of the train company, but of Pullman. Um, That means that a strike at the Pullman factory in Chicago, which is where it begins, is going to have national implications for the railroad system. Debs recognizes this. They've already formed, in fact, something before this, an organization called the ARU, the American Railway Union, but the ARU kind of becomes the organization of the strike to shut down the entire railroad system. The ARU does not actually admit the Pullman Porters, the black, the only black workers in this story, which is, uh, Debs sort of thinks they should, but he doesn't really fight much about it. And uh, right, they paralyze the railroad system, uh, which leads President Grover Cleveland to intervene and have the army break the strike and operate the trains and throw Debs in prison, where supposedly he is introduced to... The writings of Marx for the first time, producing the first kind of national socialist political leader of significance. But the strike is destroyed. The ARU is destroyed.
2: A useful parallel between Debs and Gompers, because they both have experiences of um, failure, right? These like sedimented failures that are building up. They both witness state repression firsthand. For Gompers, the response is, not an illogical one, but ultimately like a weak one, which is to, you know, stick to craft unionism and also withdraw from the state as like a terrain of struggle at all, versus Debs who takes these experiences and actually like embraces the state as a terrain of struggle in full force and runs for president on on the Socialist Party ticket. And I would also add that Um, One plank of a Socialist Party platform calls for the abolition of federal courts, going back to Andrew's point. So, you know, there is a wing that is like reckoning with the repression that the labor movement is facing, calling for the abolition of the federal court system is, you know, in some ways like unthinkable for us now, but was a demand at the time.
3: I mean, I think you're right that this this foil between Gompers and Debs is really strong, not only in terms of their relationship to the state, the defensive posture of Gompers, a with regard to politics itself and Debs' constant experiments with various parties, he founds a social Demo- democratic party. He tries to merge with sectarian radical Daniel De Leon at a couple of points. He joins William Jennings Bryan's crusades in the 1890s. He obviously runs on the socialist party ticket three times, but he also has an ongoing commitment to industrial organization and. The ARU is one example of that. But he also links up with the Western Miners Union uh, or Western Miners Association, I should say, um, which is kind of like forged in this urban industrial kind of frontier of the American West that produces some of the bloodiest conflicts that we see in this period of American labor history. Um, Ones that often, you know, whether it's Cripple Creek strike or strikes in, I think it's a goldfield, Nevada, often, again, take on this Community wide character while they're going on. Debs is often there at the forefront. And it's those kind of experiences bubbling across the kind of Mountain West, especially amongst miners, that these experiences of industrial unionism give way to an entirely distinct tradition of the International Workers of the World.
2: Industrial Workers of the World.
3: What did I say? I say international? Industrial. Right. The Industrial Workers of the World.
4: What's your name? Sam Scarlett. What's your religion? The IWW. That ain't no religion. The only one I got. Who's your next of kin? I don't have any. Well, who's your best friend? Big Bill Haywood. He's in here with you. He's still my best friend. What's your nationality? None. Well, what country are you a citizen of? I am a citizen of industry. Where is your home? Cook County Jail. Before that, County Jail, Cleveland, Ohio. And before that, City Jail, Akron, Ohio. Look, are you a citizen? No, I'm an industrial worker of the world. I mean, I want to pause to talk about them
3: because they're also a really great foil for the kind of focus and emphasis on contracts
1: and uh, skill and trade um, that are there. I I think, I mean, the the IWW isn't founded until 1905. And so, you know, there's this really profound moment of disorganization in the in the 1890s in which the AFL has less than half a million workers, that's smaller than the size of the Knights had been at their peak uh, in 1886. And you know, so the AFL is just one among many and the the model, so to speak, you know, the way to do things for the workers' struggle is not uh, is not yet decided. The AFL experiences uh, you know, six, seven years of tremendous growth right at the end of the century.
3: The growth the AFL enjoys in these years is in part because of an employer association, the National Civic Federation, which evangelized for national agreements, which you're going to hear about in a moment. But the mention of national agreements is un—it's often under the NCF auspices.
1: And it's only after there's an open shop movement that's kind of in reaction to the success of the AFL Uh, that then there's a moment for the IWW to be formed and to to hold out this alternative banner uh, and to say, you know, that your exclusionary craft practices are not the workers' cause. It was controversial
3: even then. People debated whether or not they needed to be taking the fight to the AFL, organizing and agitating within its craft unions, which is a debate that seems to happen perennially over the history of American labor, Um, but it happened even then. But still, a group of people associated, at least for a time, with some of the Western miners who had also started doing organize industrially, taking over some of the places where the, the kind of raw materials were being processed and attempting to organize them as well, they joined together with others to try to maybe forge a new organization, which would... Kind of be organized along different lines. It has a number of false starts after its 1905 conference. It's almost immediately has a number has repression brought down onto it. It its first president is very much simpatico with the broad kind of craft tradition represented by Gompers, hardly the kind of. Hobo radical that you would kind of maybe now associate with the Wobblies. But after a couple of years of false starts, of sectarian internal squabbling, the Wobblies do kind of emerge. Actually, not in the kind of Mountain West where some of their traditions maybe first were forged or where image of them amongst timber workers and timber beasts uh, might kind of like give us the impression, but actually in kind of Eastern like garment union workers. And it was here that they kind of take on the kind of sociological or compositional character that becomes so important. If AFL is now increasingly organizing some of the most skilled layers of the working class, particularly those that are often native, certainly Anglophone, um, the IWW is first taking off here amongst immigrant, foreign language speaking, um, workers that are historically far less skilled.
5: And maybe it's worth taking just a second to um, stress the the scale and the the sort of uh, novelty of the immigration happening in this period. You know, again, this is something that a lot of people might have learned at one time or another. But uh, you know, just the, the the immensity of it is is hard to overstate. Uh, the whole population of the U.S. in 1880 was around 50 million. And then over the next couple decades, from 1880 to 1910, there are 23 million immigrants who come in, you know, including large numbers of millions of Italians, Poles, Eastern European Jews, Scandinavians, Hungarians, Slovaks, Greeks, um, in addition to people still coming from places like Ireland, Germany, Wales, France, Scotland. And so there's a, there's a proportionally enormous inflow of people um, speaking all kinds of languages, who end up in the unorganized sectors of the economy by and large. And so those are the people in, you know, uh, the mills in Patterson or in Lowell, Massachusetts, and Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, where the IWW finds some of their first big nationally prominent uh, successes.
2: I just want to add very quickly that um, so before we, we started recording, I was saying that I have looked for examples of um, the labor movement supporting indigenous causes or workers in, in this time period. And it's very, very difficult to, and for the most part, the labor movement was embedded in colonial ideologies through and through, but the Wobblies did highlight in the Southwest some struggles of indigenous people going on strike. So we've been talking about like native born, people born in the US, but there is um, there are other developments going on amongst indigenous people in this period. And it's the Wobblies, more than anyone who are, like, alert to this.
5: And we had said that the Knights were, like, pretty inclusive by historical standards, but, you know, there some people they didn't find a place for. The Wobblies, to my knowledge, are willing to
0: include almost anyone, right? Yeah, and they make a point of it, ultimately, right? I mean, they organize, famously, migrant workers who are kind of moving across the extractive economies of the Midwest and Far West, who are hobos, right? I mean, or called themselves that and are seen as kind of deviant outsiders by the places that they're passing through for casual labor. And, you know, I mean, literally they organize train car to train car in that way. And, you know, if you get on a train car, the wrong one, and you see some guys in there who, you know, are trying to figure out whether they're going to kind of hang out with you that day and maybe share a little food and whatever, right? They might ask you to show your IWW cart. And that was a big part of how the organization was built. It's important also to why it was both so hated and so brutally repressed so often, right? Because it was a, it was truly and proudly a kind of organization of many of the most marginal people in American society, organized black workers in the South, uh, on the docks in particular, in places like New Orleans. And uh, also it's important to the instability of the organization, it should be said, right? Its membership was um, often quite ephemeral, right? People would sign here and then not renew there not necessarily deliberately but just because they were transitory and you know didn't ha- have the kind of sort of deep grooves of local ties and so on that would had enabled more stable labor organizations to um defend themselves yeah i think they only had a president for like what
3: 2 years it's like really just the beginning of its birth and they never even bothered electing another uh, or i think vote against kind of electing another at a pretty early stage and it's, you know, that kind of represent that kind of like itinerant feature of the work, it, it speaks to one of the core parts of how they organized. They had a transferable union card. It was so unlike the kind of craft transmission almost along family lines of a certain trade that you're taught at a younger age and then maybe you accede in uh, for some time. This was something people were kind of would take any number of strange and odd jobs. And the Wobblies were would kind of represent that as they kind of emerge as a kind of force on the labor movement, they start to adopt a couple of features, one of which is a refusal in many cases to sign contracts, which is so different from, again, the kind of idea of the enforcement of the contract, which was core to craft unionism of the period. The idea was that, why would you want to kind of curtail what you would be able to demand and fight for later? We're only here in the job for a certain period of time anyway we're going to be able to exercise our power relatively directly to stop work or to shape the way work is done or maybe even to sabotage the work process, um, which is a pretty capacious term for them. And the idea is you could exercise relatively immediately and directly kind of control of the production process to kind of extract some immediate demands that one would need. The idea of accumulating slowly modest improvements to a contract didn't really make sense given the kind of work that they were often trapped in a condition of work that they couldn't really imagine overcoming absent a major social kind of revolution.
1: The experience of the AFL unions in this first decade of the 20th century uh, is one in which they uh, are increasingly brought by employers into national agreements, which, which prohibit things like sympathy strikes. In 1902, there's a, there's a coal strike that is that is settled. Uh, with a national agreement, and you have metal trades associations, you know, form these agreements with the with the machinists, building trades councils, sign you know, uh, uh, citywide agreements with contractors associations. Once you have these things that are that then restrict the ability of workers to combat something seen as unfair at their at their job site, the idea of a of a new organization coming in 1905 after after this this wave of consolidation. Uh, the idea of of an organization that does not sign contracts comes to have
0: a certain appeal. It's worth saying also, I think the IWW is the first point where we can identify a really clear break with the producerist tradition that we spent so much time talking about from the 19th century, right? I mean, famously, the opening line of the IWW's prologue to the Constitution or whatever is, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Right? So they have a very stark kind of class conflictual view. They're anarcho-syndicalists, basically.
5: Something Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, wouldn't have recognized this anymore.
0: Right, he would have been horrified by it. And even the Knights of Labor, I think, would have had a hard time with that. The,
2: the rejection of that, like, harmony of interests.
0: Exactly, yeah. And, you know, that, again, I think, goes to their their sort of social origins, the way they're a kind of pure product of industrial capitalism, as opposed to half-digested, you know, declining, petty-producer, Formation.
5: And the relative absence of the kind of uh, native Protestant or older older immigrants in the group, although there, there were examples of, of both.
0: Yeah, right. And the, in, and the unskilled industries that they organize also can't be incorporated through like political machines and patronage and that kind of thing in the ways that like, you know, carpenters or someone like that can be, uh, who are now kind of largely, or many of them might be kind of Irish, but part of the Tammany Hall operation in New York or things like that. The IWW has exited producerism. There are still kind of maybe some residues of it in the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party is founded in the beginning of the century, although it originally has a, or pretty quickly has an alliance with the IWW for some period of time that breaks over basically relative levels of militancy, uh, and the Socialists kind of become an electoral organization.
5: And over immigration and ethnicity to some extent.
0: Yeah. Say more.
5: Uh, well, the you know the socialist party contained many tendencies, and you know uh, someone like Debs was, I think, for a white person of his time, uh, someone with fairly advanced opinions about equality. But there were you know significant sections of the socialist party uh, that were you know like the AFL, kind of four square in favor of uh, exclusionary immigration law, of you know formal uh, and informal forms of racial discrimination within the U.S. Um, I think there were. You know, differing opinions about how to relate to unions with racially exclusionary practices, and you know, if they wanted to federate, and so whereas you know the Wobblies, I think, would have no truck with you know, for instance, immigration exclusion. The right wing of the Socialist Party was openly racist in terms of, especially you know, uh, East Asian immigrants, but also other groups.
0: And as Deb says, the Socialist Party, although it, it develops certain kind of deep bases in certain places and racks up a significant vote,
4: if the U.D. V. Deb. Late presidential candidate, Socialist Party, will now address you. Fellow workers and comrades, the socialist movement is as wide as the world, and its mission is to win the world, the whole world, from animalism and consecrate it to humanity. What a tremendous task, and what a royal privilege to share in it. The winner world is worthy of a race of God. And in the winning, men develop God-like attributes. Since all men are potential gods. When enough have become socialists, and each day is augmenting the number and making them more constant, and resolute, they will sweep the country. On the only vital issue before the nation. A new power will be in control. The people for the first time in all history, man at last
5: will be free. And where are those where are those strongholds, Gabe?
0: They are well, in they are among New York City Jewish immigrants. I love to tell people that um the Jewish Daily Forward which was originally a Yiddish paper when it launched a radio station. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves in time. But when it launched a radio station, it was W-E-V-D for Eugene V. Debs. And, uh, you know, many young Jewish boys born born in New York in the first decades of the 20th century were named either Eugene or Victor. And so that's one. Um Another is among Scandinavian immigrants who also had significant IWW involvement, uh, Finns, Swedes, etc. in the kind of northern tier of the country. A third is with um, just sort of certain layers of skilled workers or kind of pockets of one place or another, a kind of AFL union or a local of one anyway, will kind of have socialist leaders and socialist, uh, significant kind of socialist rank and file participation. Brewers in in Milwaukee, for example. Yeah. And then maybe with the least sort of enduring historical significance, but as a marker of some of the forces flowing in or through this period, you know, Eugene Debs' best state in the 1912 presidential election is Oklahoma, right, which is a product of kind of farmers movement legacies.
1: Yeah. And I think it's worth noting just how much the Socialist Party, you know, of its first decade was really uh, part and parcel of the labor movement. Its strongholds were in locals. It challenged the AFL, you know, Gompers, uh, for leadership of the AFL. And in some ways, it's differing with uh, more radical groups like the IWW was over trade union principles, you know, how, whether or not to organize dual unions, for example, which is something that the IWW uh, would not have
0: uh, been so opposed to. And they build up significant local power in lots of places, right? Famously Milwaukee, later on Reading, Pennsylvania, Bridgeport, Connecticut, to some degree parts of New York City, they elect a couple of members to Albany, who this legislature refuses to seat, et cetera. But they never really achieved national coherence. I think lots of people like to say that, you know, the only thing the different factions could agree on was Debs himself. And beyond that, uh, you know, they were, they were kind of torn too many ways across too many levels and layers and fragments of the working class. Infamously, Trotsky will say the Socialist Party is a party of dentists. Which I think gives you a little sense of um, of some of the limits on the organization. Well, it's the kind of critique that you hear
1: from the left about DSA today. That's true. So it's a, it's too focused on electoral politics. It's uh, has a middle class base. You know, the Socialist Party did have a middle class base.
5: Less less than than now.
0: <laughs> and still, in any you know, in a big industrial city, at their height, in a presidential election, they could get ten percent of the vote.
3: That kind of unevenness of the organization vis-a-vis the working class, I think, was also part of the appeal of Debs, that Debs had American bona fides, unlike most of their rank and file or many other kind of like leaders of his caliber. I mean, not only because of the kind of heroic labor struggles that he had passed through and helped lead, but also because he could really pass as a kind of native-born Christian, uh, speaking the idiom of Christianity at least, kind of socialist leader. And those were few and far between for the party during this period. But reaching them was kind of crucial if you were trying to win at the ballot box.
5: Right. So Debs, as a, you know, uh, he's the son of immigrants, but they're the immigrants in the higher social reaches, right? Debs, as a, as a son of, you know, a certain kind of immigrant seeking to ally himself with, you know, the more scorned, less skilled immigrants, that's the same kind of uh, social alliance that will come to be important in the CIO, right? Uh, even if Debs fails to, to carry it off uh, himself. And
1: the followers of Debs, who, who are trained in the interunion struggles of the Roosevelt and Taft period, will become challengers for control of the international unions. The mine workers is, is one uh, key, key example. Challengers who, who are excluded and uh, isolated in their unions until the moment of the Depression when people who, you know, who would have cast votes for Debs in 1912 suddenly have the opportunity to go out and organize 10,000 workers and, and are given that opportunity.
5: Right. It's worth remembering that Debs runs for president for the last time in 1920. You know, it's only less than a decade later that the Depression starts, right? So even though in a certain way, Debs feels like he's way on the other side of this divide um, and he's participating in things in the 1890s, there's not a ton of time uh, in between Debs's death and the rise of the CIO. Yeah,
3: political endurance really only matched by Joe Biden. It's worth saying. <laughs> no one else manages to run so many times.
0: But I do think, I mean, Andrew alluded earlier to, you know, the fact that some f- uh, founding figures in the CIO were in the nights of labor, and that's certainly true. But many, many of the important figures of the workers' movement in the 1930s, as, as Andrew was just saying, right, passed through the Socialist Party or the IWW, or both.
4: They condemned the whole system of what they call dog-eat-dog, dog, you know, this idea that everybody lived off of everybody else, and mostly off the working class. Uh, when they voiced these ideas, of course, they, they they upset people. And people were just upset because those words, I-W-W, was a, was, a fear, was a fear phrase for 10 or 15 years in the United States. You know, a lot of their slogans put out used to tickle me. One they used an awful lot was trust in the Lord and sleep in the street. Another one was Jesus saves the willing slaves. <laughs> I never <know> that them. <laughs> We'd plaster them all over the country, little uh, little two by four stickers, you know. Or gummed on the back, you can just wet them and stick them up on them.
0: And these struggles of the progressive era. At the level of biography are really kind of critical in informing what's going to happen in the 30s let's talk about progressivism a little bit speaking of the progressive era does anyone want to take a crack at the question of how to define progressivism or the era
1: well chronologically at least i think there's some agreement that it you know it begins with the great merger movement or the the consolidation of the great merger movement 1895 to 1900 or so the, the emergent factory system that is built up out of the end of the Civil War and the reconstruction period which faces tremendous price competition and overcapacity becomes something that really securities dealers in New York City come to think about how you know how to rationalize how to how to combat falling prices uh, in manufactured goods, um, how to prevent the continuous uh, cycles of, of overcapacity. Uh, and how to exercise how to come to exercise a centralized control over a system of 20 or 30 factories which had been controlled by you know a dozen or more companies Uh, and it's not just it's not just uh machines and and heavy manufacturing but things like um cigar rolling
5: i mean one way to think about it is, is the extension of this new national corporate form uh to things besides the railroads right because even though a lot of the corporate law is taking shape in the 1870s and 1880s at that point The corporations of this sort basically are the railroads. The securities market basically is railroad securities. Um, And in the 1890s, there's a a really unprecedented level of of merger and acquisition activity in which things like the U.S. Steel Corporation emerge. And that happens, as Andrew says, all the way down to you know sugar refining, uh, tobacco, et cetera. These sort of you know many of the largest uh, producers of both capital goods and consumer goods um, consolidating right precisely to limit competition and try to uh, avoid these business cycles that we had talked about in, in the 1870s 1880s 1890s
1: and it's and it's a peculiarity of american business history because the the impetus to common ownership emerges as a way of getting around what had been the the political program of the you know what we had earlier called the producers movement of uh, anti-monopoly politics so they passed these laws making it illegal to openly cartelize your industry, to openly set prices with, your, with people who, who should, should be your competitors, according to, to the Congress. And in that situation, if you can't fix your prices with your competitor, you can get a bank loan to buy their business, and then you own it. And, and, and this becomes the solution for stabilizing the business anarchy of the, of the 1880s and 1890s.
3: Yeah, I think we could say a little more about this. Uh, Like, why does this conversation of progressivism matter to this podcast?
1: Well, it's a question that historians continue to debate today. Uh, There's a basic agreement on the chronology of the era from uh, 1900 with Teddy Roosevelt to uh, the Wilson administration in 1916 or 1920, or maybe uh, the La Follette third party campaign in 1924. But that agreement on periodization obscures a, a disagreement in interpretation. I mean, there, there, there is a basic in, disagreement in interpretation over the meaning of what those 20 or 30 years meant for American history. A useful way of understanding this disagreement is in the titles of two basic, uh, you know, classic works on the period. One is Richard Hofstadter's Age of Reform, uh, in which uh, the Progressive Era is uh, described as a link in a continuous chain from the Populist Party and William Jennings Bryan in the 1890s through uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, Square Deal in the 1900s to Woodrow Wilson's new freedom uh, you know, in World War I.
3: Yeah, people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. extend this even further in both directions. You know, for them, progressivism is something which is linking, you know, Andrew Jackson before the Civil War up to Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy after World War II. You know, I'm not sure what Schlesinger would have ultimately thought about Bill Clinton, but had he written the book later, maybe he would have been included in the mix.
1: Right. Uh, but there's a different interpretation from uh, this one of, you know, reform, the continuity of reform, And that is representative by someone like Gabriel Kolko, whose history of the progressive era is not titled the age of reform, but rather the triumph of conservatism. Rather than calling progressives trust busters or tribunes of the common people, this is a very different interpretation. People like Kolko or uh, James Weinstein, uh, who founded the magazine in these times, understood how. The leaders of the new trusts were deeply responsible and integrated into the party apparatus of TR or Woodrow Wilson and how these corporate executives had their hands all over the laws of the period, laws like the state level workmen's compensation acts or the Clayton Act amendments to the Sherman Act um, or the establishment of the Federal Trade Commission or the Federal Reserve Act, uh, those being the most obvious examples.
3: Yes yeah, so, so this is the bottom line. There are real legal reforms that happen between, you know, 1900 and 1912, or maybe until 1920 or so. But those who are championing them often happen to have controlling interests in the enterprise that they're regulating. By taking reform away from their opponents, corporate executives and their political allies ensured that they kind of retain their powers and privileges and class positions. So you can see the persuasiveness of this interpretation uh, when you look at something like the Great Society, which saw you know oversaw or is kind of coeval with the war in Vietnam and the repression of domestic activism in a range of social movements. James Weinstein, though he's probably thinking about Lyndon Johnson, described progressivism as corporate liberalism. You can understand why this argument holds.
1: Right. So for our purposes in a show about the CIO – Uh, One of the key progressive era institutions and and progressive institutions, self-described progressive institutions, uh, is the National Civic Federation, which was uh, essentially a national employers association. Founded in 1900, it sought to popularize collective bargaining, and it encouraged its members to sign national agreements with American Federation of Labor Unions at a moment when the industrial relations of the country were uh, profoundly uncertain and, you know, marked by periodic pitched battles in in the streets of American cities. The Civic Federation was, the the first president of the Civic Federation was somebody named Mark Hanna, who was a corporation promoter, meaning he, you know, sold uh, stock for, you know, new trusts. Uh, who had also come to national prominence raising campaign financing for William McKinley's 1896 campaign, uh, which defeated William Jennings Bryan. The, the Civic Federation also accepted and, and really encouraged the membership of national labor leaders like Samuel Gompers and also later William Green, who succeeded Gompers as president of the AFL, and Matthew Wall, who was president of the Photo Engravers Union and, and would later become a key apparatchik of the of the Federation of Labor, uh, but because the Civic Federation also included financiers like J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie, the participation of union leaders like Green and Wall would become a political issue later in in the twentieth century, in the nineteen twenties, when. Uh, you know, political the political direction of organized labor would become open to debate. Yeah, to boil it down, I
3: think the reason why we're so interested in talking about progressivism is that it is such a great way to begin to get at the theme of this nexus of reformist state and working class organization the relationship between these two terms and as Andrew said earlier it's also a question of the composition of the ruling class of how the robber barons of the era the monopoly magnates did or did not fit into the ruling blocks of their day and to what degree they drove that they were conceded or they put their stamp on progressive reforms Uh, this era also throws up questions in the register of intra-class alliances of the non-working-class layers of capitalist society entering into alliance with its more proletarian elements And, you know, that raises whole other questions about what layer exercised leadership over the others of, you know, who ultimately was setting the terms of that collaboration. You know, this isn't producerism, uh, obviously, but, you know, we can apply the same heuristic to making sense of this alliance to the degree that that lasting unity did take hold over a longer period of time. You know, for example, when the AFL, the right wing of the AFL and the left wing of capital actually saw risks to themselves in the class confrontation of the early years of the 20th century, and so they came together in an organization called the National Civic Federation, which organized progressive capitalists to make certain concessions to workers, forms of welfare capitalism and regulation, or mediation in select industries. The NCF embodies a, a version of corporate liberalism, the idea that with this kind of coordination and farcing leadership, capital could answer the labor question it's going to reemerge in the 1930s as a contentious issue inside the AFL in a moment of a split that gives rise to to the CIO you know the national civic federation itself is a kind of key issue at that that kind of moment of the CIO's birth so i guess that's why we're interested in the progressive movement so much and in its moment because it really does anticipate all these debates you probably shouldn't linger on them too much now, but we can not say that all of these themes are going to mature in the series into a range of interpretive positions to how to think about the relationship between a limited working class insurgency on the one hand and an expansive state reconstruction of the New Deal moment on the other. Uh, and those are questions where even our organizing committee for the project may not always agree.
5: So what did all this mean for labor at the, at the time?
0: I was going to say, I think one helpful way of thinking about the progressive era, which is compatible with either of those interpretations, um, or can be fitted into either of them, is that it sees the activation of a kind of major layer of basically middle class figures, especially the kind of emerging new middle classes. So not the old middle class of like shopkeepers and petty producers, but a new middle class of professionals who are interested in kind of finding a negotiated peace to the social question or the labor question, right? They're they're anxious and threatened by the kind of instability, by the, you know, volcanic forces bubbling up from below, by the rapacity of the robber barons up top.
5: By the fact that every 10 years you have pitched battles in the street between workers and
0: and the militia. Yeah, they don't like it. They don't think it's good. Someone like Jane Addams of Hull House in Chicago is a classic example of this, right? Jane Addams kind of comes from a 19th century Republican kind of anti-slavery family. You know, she and the people who operate, found and operate Hull House, which is a settle, the first settlement house, a place to kind of meant meant to kind of literally be a stage for like a physical location for the classes to mingle and get to know each other. And uh, The people who founded and operated are the sort of generation of women who've gone to college in the late 19th century, and you know, are and we could sort of recognize them as sort of professional class early social democrats or or left liberals or something like that, right? They, those are anachronisms to apply to them. But
5: some of them were literal socialists, like like someone like Florence Kelly, you know, knew um, you know, Babel and, and the German social democrats. So it's, it's, she
0: translated um Engels into English, Florence Kelly. Right.
5: So there's a spectrum, but some of them are are, you know, clear leftists in, in ways that we would identify today.
0: Yeah. Um, at the same time, right, they're all, I mean, less Kelly, but a lot of them have kind of anxieties about revolution or even about trade unionism.
5: It's a very Protestant ethos, right? To a very
0: Protestant world, yeah. Um, and it does also have quite elite, it has a real elite wing. And
2: sometimes eugenicists. Mm. Yes. Many of them were eugenicists or thought that they could kind of like engineer the population and and purify society almost. You see like a lot of social Darwinist ideas floating around at this time. Yeah, which
0: aligned with the right wing of the socialist party sometimes or in some ways. And they fit this general theme of sort of rationalizing,
5: right? You know, if the, if the corporations rationalize competition, um, if philanthropy and social legislation uh, rationalizes social disorder, you know, eugenics is a way of, of rationalizing the population um, in a way that blends, I think, pretty gradually into what we would recognize as public health ideas or things that we like, like more you know, or we feel less complicated about. Definitely.
2: Rationalize and also Americanize, um, Mm because they're also responding to, like, the enormous diversity of the working class at this point. Yeah.
0: And they proliferate organizations that are kind of meant to, uh, sort of civil society type organizations of a new kind, right, a middle class kind that are meant to buffer, I think is a helpful way of thinking about it, to buffer the social conflict, uh, the social question, so we've already alluded to one in the form of Florence Kelly's, right, the factory inspector, right, Andrew talked about this. Florence Kelly, who was in the in Hull the house circle, um, became Illinois' first factory inspector. As that mechanism of state regulation fails legally, she helps to found the National Consumers League, which is basically an idea that you can organize consumers not to buy garments made in sweatshops and to kind of coordinate support for garment workers and their unions among consumers. And not just garments, right? Sweatshop goods of various kinds and eventually all kinds of goods. Right, which becomes a key kind
1: of ally in in the emergent AFL world where you have these narrower craft-based unions in manufacturing uh, having to uh, figure out ways to exercise power that they that is not available to them because they're not leading entire cities to shut their cities down. They're going after contractors, vendors... Uh, you know, trying to uh, use uh, an organized consumer sentiment in collective bargaining.
0: And, uh, you know, there's also all these other organiza- progressive organizations, who, many of whose character is quite ambiguous in a similar way, right? There's the American Association for Labor Legislation, which is formed basically by social sci- progressive social scientists. Again, many of them kind of Christian, Protestant, you know, wanting to kind of heal the social divide, who... In opposition to the AFL. Right, in opposition to the AFL, which does not believe in labor legislation for reasons we discussed, the AALL becomes a kind of major lobby for um, early forms of social policy, most significantly workers' compensation is their big victory, right, to get states to pass workers' comp bills. Again, often kind of in alliance with capital in the way that Andrew was talking about earlier. Uh, It rationalizes what had been a chaotic process of lawsuits over workers' injuries. Instead, they move it into a bureaucracy. Similarly, there's a movement successful movement f- to establish mothers pensions. so these are the kind of forerunner of what we would call uh, welfare across much of the twentieth century, and these are small quantities of state income for um, poor mothers basically who are, who are qualifying in terms of you know their moral behavior and they have to have been abandoned or widowed or whatever. So they kind of begin to build elements of what we could recognize as the welfare state. Uh, they also, a classic progressive organization is the Women's Trade Union League, which is formed in 1909 in response to the so-called uprising of the 20,000 in New York City, which is a massive garment strike. And uh, basically involves an attempt to kind of mobilize the sympathies of elite women on behalf of the working class women on the Lower East Side who are on strike. So it's
5: an industry in need of rationalization. It's also an industry with uh, working conditions that sort of uh, are conducive to workers fighting back, right? So both
3: it as a kind of industry, but also the kind of like slum conditions surrounding Mm. where these, you know factories are located are um, the object of intense scrutiny on the part of the progressive milieus and organizations that we've been discussing. And they've got their own designs about, you know, and ideas about how to kind of rationalize and, and address the kind of real problems growing up in these cities. And it's worth just mentioning too, so do some of these immigrant workers themselves, who like are intensely organized in the precincts immediately surrounding these textile factories. The Lower East Side alone, you know, Gabe mentioned that it was a kind of heartland of American socialism, I think it was upwards of 50,000 votes that they were kind of commanding for socialists uh, for quite some time. And they also built, as Andrew pointed out, pretty impressive organization amongst the female garment workers. And they were kind of a high watermark of what was a kind of growing crescendo of immigrant radicalism that was coursing through the nation at this time and probably formed in part the backdrop to some of the nativists, nativism that was kind of also growing pretty loudly in the period. I think there was, you know, a big immigrant-led steelwork strike in Pennsylvania around the same time that we see this huge outpouring of textile worker radicalism in the uprising of the 20,000, which is a bit of a misnomer because I think more than 20,000 women also took place in the strike.
0: On, on both of these, it's worth saying, so we know from Davis or from Davis's summary of it that this McKees Rocks Pennsylvania strike that you're alluding to, the press uh, the pressed steel car strike. A worker participated in it who had also participated in the 1905 revolution in Russia. There's tons of Russian workers in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, Similarly, the uprising of the 20,000 in 1909, you know, it's one of the events in American labor history that has a kind of mythic beginning moment. And I say that in connection to the Pennsylvania one, because of course, in fact, as is always true with these things, the kind of mythic moment which appears to be spontaneous, bespeaks, you know, very dedicated organizing work among Jewish garment workers in New York. But the moment is a, a union meeting in 1909 in Cooper Union in New York, you know, in downtown New York, where uh, the AFL has kind of counseled the workers not to strike, that it's premature, that they're not ready, et cetera. And a 23 year old woman named Clara Lemlich sort of leaps up on the stage as the story is told and says, I am one of those who suffers from the abuses described here, and I move that we go on a general strike in Yiddish. And she then says, will you take the old Hebrew oath? Uh, if I turn traitor to the cause I now pledge, may my hand wither from the arm I now raise. And this is a kind of like classic moment of American labor history that triggers this strike.
1: Right. and And the reason that it requires a mass strike is that you know we said it's a, it's an industry where you know you can fight back except that any gains made for any particular employer are immediately undercut because of the huge number of garment shops there's a good line in Benjamin Stolberg who who wrote one of the early histories of the ILG where he says you could build a factory out of a clothing shop but not a trust there's there was too many small firms for it to be effectively trustified the way that steel or or meatpacking or or, or these other industries were because the all the machinery you needed was a sewing machine and a cutting knife and, and labor. It's a really low barrier to entry, and so the 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 attempt um, of organized garment workers to regulate their industry builds up to these explosive moments where everyone knows that there's a huge problem that everyone's being exploited, but the the kind of shop by shop organizing that does work and 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 through which the ILG would, would see tremendous growth sometimes doesn't catch up to the experience of people working in it. And so you have these moments like the uprising of the 20,000 where, I mean, the, the purpose of the meeting is just to, is to discuss what to do. And uh, a young worker stands up and says, well, we all have to walk out now and they do it. They do it. And that's why it achieves that kind of mythic status.
5: And maybe an illustration of the fact, you know, what you're saying, Andrew is that even, even something as dramatic and I think, you know, at least in part successful as the uprising of the 20,000, um, doesn't solve the problem. Uh, an illustration of that is that two years later we have the the very famous uh, disaster at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company.
0: Right, and that is worth noting a, a connection between those in the Women's Trade Union League. So the Women's Trade Union League uh, is formed, I believe, in 1909 as a Strike Support Committee for the Uprising of the Twenty Thousand.
1: Well, that's 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 its moment of you know walking onto the stage or you know it's a project of you know inside the AFL by progressive women earlier, but but it is the opportunity to uh,
0: support this citywide strike in downtown New York. And the particular thing that it does, right, so the, the strikers are getting beaten up on the picket lines by the NYPD. And the particular thing that they do is they recruit the kind of daughters of the upper crust of the Upper East Side, most famously J.P. Morgan's daughter, to come walk the picket lines in their fur coats. So it's called the Mink Brigade. Uh, and this sort of works, in fact, and right, in, at least in reducing police repression. And then there's a major... Rupture two years later, the organization survives it and persists into the '30s. But the and it will be part of the story again. But uh, there's a famous kind of confrontation after the Triangle Fire, and there's a Women's Trade Union League meeting. Uh, basically, there are forces within the organization that want that want it to take a left turn, uh, right around questions of women's suffrage, and around generally the kind of Rel- you know, demanding a kind of more unconditional support for workers' demands, as opposed to letting the kind of elite participants shape the workers' movement. And so here's an opportunity to introduce someone else important, Rose Schneiderman, who is a full-time organizer for the Women's Trade Union League, and begins her speech to the League after the Triangle Fire, like this. I would be a traitor to these poor burnt bodies if I came here to talk good fellowship. We have tried, you good people of the public, and we have found you wanting. The old Inquisition had its rack and its thumbscrews and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumbscrews are the high-powered and swift machinery, close to which we must work. And the rack is there, in the fire-trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch on fire. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and property is so sacred. There are many of us for one job. It matters little if 146 of us are burned to death. We have tried you, citizens. We are trying you now. And you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers, brothers and sisters by way of a charity gift. But every time the workers come out in the only way they know how to protest against conditions which are unbearable, the strong hand of the law is allowed allowed to press down heavily upon us.
2: Miner's life is like a
3: for listening to this episode of Fragile Juggernaut, a podcast on the meaning of the CIO. We will be releasing new episodes every other week through the duration of our series. Our next episode will survey the period immediately prior to the Great Depression, the tumult of World War 1, the strike wave and new organizing drives that followed it, and the violent defeat in interracial animus that became the chief legacy of the period. We call this moment the lean years. Fragile Juggernaut is hosted by our organizing committee, Alex Press, Andrew Elrod, Ben Maybe, Emma Teitelman, Gabriel Winant, and Tim Barker. We are produced by Alex Lewis and Jackson Roach at RoHome Home Productions, and we're brought to you by Haymarket Books as the first Haymarket Originals production. Make sure to follow and share the Haymarket Originals podcast feed, which you're probably listening to now, so that you and your comrades can be the first to know about other series-length non-fiction audio products coming in the months and years ahead. To learn more about Haymarket Originals, visit haymarketbooks.org, where you'll find thousands of indispensable radical books and other political education resources. You can also join the Haymarket Book Club, one of the best ways to support Haymarket and help fund projects like this. You can also find a link to our Patreon for Fragile Juggernaut in the show notes below. Subscribers to the podcast will get access to our newsletter, which features reading lists, further analysis, and interviews with historians and labor radicals, past and present. We need your support to pay our talented producers so if you're still listening, throw us what cash you can at patreon.com. Solidarity forever.
2: And you're high the scale.
3: row home productions.